Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed, we marvel that you would enter time and space, that your Son would come and take on flesh and dwell among us. It's a simple story, yet extremely profound. As we see our theology coming, crashing into history and colliding in a little town called Bethlehem. Guide us as we go to the text today, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Luke chapter two, we're back in Luke, as we journey through the Christmas story this season. As you're turning there, for some, the belief that Jesus was born of a virgin is nothing less than evidence of intellectual dimness. <laughs> In fact, one of the writers for the New York Times recently lamented and states plainly, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time, end of quote. Lest we think we're far more sophisticated than those living 2,000 years ago, this writer of the New York Times needs to remember that the thought of a virgin birth was inconceivable in the first century. <laughs> I, I have no doubt that Mary and Joseph understood the laws of nature. In fact, our text for today clearly states that this young teenage girl was just as bewildered as our present-day writer in the New York Times. And thus, as we approach the key elements of the Christmas story, that is the virgin birth, it's easy to echo Mary's question, how, how can this be? How can we have a virgin birth? Is the story contrived for the purpose of validating the claims that were given to Jesus? Is the story a knockoff of Greek mythology, as some want to claim? Or is the story a true account of where theology and history come colliding together? And what does the story of the virgin birth really matter? I mean, we believe Jesus is a savior, is that not sufficient? Evangelical theologian Millard Erickson states it very well. He says, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible and there is no principle, no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. And so, our task or my task this morning, is to demonstrate to you the validity, and I would argue the importance, the grave importance of the virgin birth by looking at a text, and that's Luke chapter two. So if you would, let's look at two, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, well, this will be repeated twice. It bookends this section of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and if you recall, Zechariah, her husband, they're well up in years. They're past the childbearing age, and Zechariah is in the temple. An angel appears, tells him they're going to give birth. He says, you got to be kidding, and you know the story, right? And so Elizabeth is pregnant. The angel Gabriel, that same angel that had talked to Zechariah, was sent by God. Don't miss that. 
Gabriel only does what the Lord has sent him to do. In a town of Galilee named Nazareth. So we we're more specific. Galilee is a huge region. Now this is a little town called Nazareth, which many probably aren't even aware of. Small little burg way outside of Jerusalem. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Uh, you could render that the Lord is certainly with you. Uh, there is no doubt here on the, on the greeting that the angel gives. But she was greatly troubled by the words and began to wonder about the meaning of this greeting. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's repeated. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I have had, I've had no sexual relations with any man? And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant with a son in her old age. How would you like to be known in Scripture as old? All right, there it is, right? She's an old lady. But although she has been barren, she is now in her sixth month. There it is repeated. For nothing, I love this, is impossible with God. So Mary said, yes, I am a servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As Matthew, or excuse me, as Luke retells this story, he gives us the when, he gives us the who, and he gives us the where almost immediately in the first couple verses. Let's look at these. The time frame is clear. Elizabeth has been pregnant for six months. The next scene in, the, in Luke's gospel is Mary going to see Elizabeth. Oh, you're pregnant. I know, so am I. Just lovely. You get the idea. All right, and so this is that time frame, but that, that connects us to the story of Zechariah because the son that has been promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth is John the Baptist. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's the one who introduces to Israel, this is your Meshua, this is your Savior, this is Jesus. And so that's the time frame, the who. Well, there's two major players in this text, isn't there? The first is Gabriel, which the term means God has shown himself strong. Again, Gabriel appeared six months ago, and so it tells you something is significantly gonna happen here. <laughs> when he appears on the scene, uh, this is like E.F. Hutton. You better listen. Something is major. Jewish tradition in, in the intertestament, between the old and the new, one writing in particular, first Enoch, names four angels that surround the throne room of God. Michael, Raphael, Phanuel, and Gabriel. It's interesting in first Enoch, Gabriel is the angel who drove Adam and Eve from the garden played a key role. And if that is indeed true, how ironic. It's the same angel who will introduce the one who will undo the first sin by Adam. Gabriel's career is also tied biblically. He's mentioned in Daniel. 
Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 mention this is the angel who introduces the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So we have a very significant player that has come into the scene. Mary, she's not so significant. Not in the, in the grand scheme of things in the first century. This is a peasant. She's probably 11, 12, no older than 13, being in the betrothal period. We'll talk what that means, but this is the time in which one is set up to be married. She's young. She's certainly poor. We know that based on the offering they make to the temple later in Luke's gospel. And we're told twice that she's a virgin. Notice this in verse, uh, we see this in verse 7 to 27. Twice she's told she's a virgin. And we're told elsewhere indirectly that she's a virgin when it says she's known no male. Elizabeth is old, but you could explain her pregnancy. You cannot explain Mary's pregnancy. <laughs> God has to intervene. It's why I love the line of verse 26, the prepositional phrase, by God. The angel was sent by God. It's God who's got to intervene, God who's got to engage. Speaking of engage, we're told that Mary is engaged. Notice the text says to a man named Joseph, verse 27 who is a descendant of David. Now that phrase could be that Mary is a descendant of David, but the closest connection would be Joseph in the text. And the term is betrothal. You probably hear that. If you've got a good King James Version, you've got that rendered there. And that's based on Deuteronomy 22. Young people, you're gonna love this. Your engagement lasted for a year. Ooh, right? That's awful. A lot of time to plan your wedding though. That's great. Uh, so you have a year. Uh, and, and during this time, it, it's, it's more than just an engagement, though. It is a legal binding. Money has been given for this process. And it's a, also a demonstration that this bride-to-be truly is faithful. If she's not, she could be stoned. She definitely would be put away. And, and so here is this 11, 12, 13-year-old an angel saying, oh, by the way, you're going to be pregnant. <laughs> Joseph's probably anywhere 14 to 16 years of age. Can you imagine? That's my daughter's age. Yikes. They're young. Very young. And again, during this time frame, it's, it's very significant. When Joseph takes Mary, the angel tells him to, and he does, um, he becomes then the legal guardian, not only of Mary, but also any children that she might have. Notice what is not seen in the text. Mary doesn't approach the angel. She, she's not in the temple worshiping. She's not at the synagogue praying. It's God who enters. I mean, she's busy preparing a wedding. Little, she's not thinking of a baby shower, right? That's not even on, the, the, on her mind. Step back from the text a minute. Don't you love how the Lord is demonstrating he's the savior of all people? Gabriel appeared to this elderly man named Zechariah, a who's who in Jewish society. He's a priest in Jerusalem serving in the temple. I mean, he's got it together. This girl, no one knows who she is. I mean, she has a little bit of family in Nazareth. That's great, but I mean, she's poor insignificant she's a female I mean 
really? You compare the two? Now, I'm in that culture, all right? I wasn't saying today. But you've got a male, you've got a female. You've got a priest, you've got a nobody. And yet, Gabriel, via God's ambassador, is coming to all, demonstrating we have a Savior for all people, which Luke will highlight, as we've seen in our journey thus far in his gospel. So you've got the, the when, you've got the who, and you've got the where. Notice the text tells us in a town of Galilee named Nazareth. This is 60, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It sits on a mountain range, the lower part of the Galilean region. It overlooks the Jezreel Valley, which is very significant because that's a, that was an international highway in its day. Jesus, as a child, looking, standing on the cliffs of Nazareth, looking out, would have seen the entire world go by. But the entire world is passing by. <laughs> They're not stopping at Nazareth. That was a little burg. And, and, and in fact, folks from the Galilean region, at least according to those who lived in Jerusalem, were seen as the backwards bumpkins, the hillbillies. They weren't sophisticated like those of us who live in Jerusalem. That was the mentality. And, and, and so here you have this one from a, a town that Nazareth that is not religiously significant. It's not a Jerusalem. It's not economically significant like a Jericho. It's not politically significant like Caesarea. And it's not culturally significant like a Hebron. This t uh, it's a nothing. Yet, many scholars believe there's a connection here with Isaiah 11. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 2, Jesus is called a Nazarene. And that's not from the Nazarite vow. That has nothing to do with it. And in other words, he's a Nazarene from Nazareth. And in Isaiah 11, it says that the messianic shoot, the offspring of David, and he uses the term branch or shoot, which in Hebrew is Nazar, Nazarene, Nazar, there's the connection, is, is a descendant of Jesse. Zechariah 3, David's descendant is referred to as my servant, the branch. And in Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In this day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteous. So there is an understanding, and I believe Matthew and Luke are trying to demonstrate, this might be an insignificant town, but the connection off of, I playing off of Isaiah 11, I believe, is to show no, this might be a lowly beginning, but this is the one who's been promised to David and his descendants and to all of Israel. This is the one who will reign. So we have the who, <clears throat> the when, and we have the where, but not the why, and that comes in the announcement, doesn't it, that Gabriel gives. And let's look at the text. Let's see what he states in verse 28. The angel came to her and said, greetings favored one. Twice Mary will be called favored. She's a recipient of God's grace. Uh, she is not a worthy recipient, I would argue. There's no, I mean, in the sense of there's nothing she's done personally to merit this. It's simply because God has graciously 
bestowed it upon her. You say, well, how do you argue that? Because the use of that term elsewhere is used of Noah, who was spared from the flood. It was used of Gideon when he was chosen to be the judge of Israel. It was used of Hannah to give a child in barrenness. And it was used of David when he received back the Ark of the Covenant. There's no request associated with favor that is given. It's freely bestowed. and In Acts, it becomes a key term for what God does for his people. It's used in Ephesians 1 for all of us who know Jesus as our Savior. We too have been favored. And Mary is favored because God is going to use her out of his good pleasure. In other words, while Mary serves a major role in God's plan, she's still born a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. Scripture never teaches, and what some Christian circles will argue for immaculate conception, or that Mary remained sinless throughout her life. It's not Mary who needed to pay, or could even pay, the penalty for our sins. It was her son, Jesus. <laughs> she also needed a savior. And the, when Gabriel greets her, notice he says, you know, favored are you, the Lord is with you. And I love that. And again, it's, it's of certainty. It, it's that God is, is going to use you for his glory. And again, same connections are given to believers later in the New Testament. The idea that we come to Mary and pray as our intercessor, that wasn't developed in the church until 1568 AD. Uh, the, the idea that this mother of God, idea that it's our intercessor, that, that's foreign, I would argue, to the New Testament. The downside is to play Mary's role, and it's very significant. So there's, there's a catch-22, isn't there? We can go to one extreme or the other but notice her response. Now, remember Zechariah's response. He questioned the Lord. He questioned Gabriel's message. And that got him into hot water. <laughs> Mary is perplexed. Notice the text states, she's greatly troubled and began to wonder. That term, it's, it's as if she's ongoing. What? I, I don't understand. This can't be, you know, how can, you know, this idea that it's coming through. And, and you would expect that. She doesn't doubt the message. She just doesn't know how this could be. And so the angel said, Don't, do not fear. It's the same instruction given to Zechariah. They, they both were struggling with meeting an angel, number one. But number two, obviously, is the announcement that's given. And we see that starting in verse 30. So the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant, and here it is, and you will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. If you're saying that sounds really familiar, that phrase, you'll give birth to a son, and you will name him, yes, it occurs several times in Scripture. It's seen in Genesis, it's used of Ishmael. It's used of Samson in Judges, this idea that, that you're going to give birth and, and the son is going to be named. This is all very significant. You're not going to name him Joseph, too. No, no. I already selected the name. Remember, that was the whole issue with Zachariah. They said, well, his name will be John. You can't name him John. He's little Zachy. 
What do you mean? The, the, no, it, God has orchestrated events. He's saying, I'm naming this child, and it's very significant. It echoes Isaiah 7, verse 14. If you remember the text, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that a virgin will give birth, and you will call that name Emmanuel. The context of Isaiah 7 is with Ahaz. He is not someone you want to emulate in your life. Ahaz is disobedient. He fails to cooperate with the Lord. But the Lord is gracious and promised a sign to the courts, stating, despite this louse, I will not extend or make extinct the Davidic dynasty. I will carry it out. And the one that is going to be born is I'm going to be with him. The immediate context is Hezekiah. And he was a great king. But undoubtedly, there's a future nuance in that passage, as was seen in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that there is a day coming when a virgin will give birth. I mentioned here, the future meaning as its signal and provide an explicit prediction of the miraculous conception and nativity of Jesus Christ. It's implied in this text that Luke has recorded. You're going to give birth, you as a virgin, to a son. You will name him Jesus. What is the context? Ultimately, is a promise that God made back in Isaiah 7, 14. Notice that this child, it says, do not be afraid, you found favor. He will be great. And this indicates possibly deity. Later on, the child, notice, will be called holy. That's seen in verse 35, which is clearly, I would argue, placing him with divine status. But the greatness of the son, again, uh, it's not Mary who's called great, it's the son. And Mary is not called holy, only the son. And he's called son of the most high. Later, he's called the son of God in verse 35. Those two terms are used interchangeably in Jewish writings. And they're often directly linked with the Davidic king, the one who will come. Now, what the New Testament is showing is not only is he the Davidic king, but there's something also very significant here. This is God in the flesh. And that's difficult to get our heads around, and we could spend the rest of the day discussing this. But ladies, I know you've got an event at two. But the idea is here, we have a regal figure. We have a promise made to David. But more than that, you've got God in the flesh, I would argue. Again, where do we get this promise made to David? We read it last week, but 2 Samuel 7, let me refresh your memory. God says to King David, you will establish a kingdom and you will build and I will build a house for my name through you David and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son notice what the text says back go back to Luke you found favor with God he will be called son of the most high the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. You know the song, right? It's the idea here. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. The context is David speaking. Today I have begotten you. This royal 
imagery, this lineage comes all the way down. This isn't a coincidence. We looked at the genealogy last week. This isn't throwing the dice and hoping things turn out. It is God orchestrating the events. The promises he's made all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back 1100 BC to David, and the promises that would be given come to fruition here in the text. Notice, he says, you will have a throne. This figure of David is surely the Messiah. He and God par excellence. Here he is. This is the one we longed for. And again, the eternality of the reign is highlighted as he will reign forever and ever. Verse 33. Well, Mary says to the angel, how shall this be? She's still caught up at the first part of the announcement. She's not too concerned about the theology on the Davidic reign, et cetera, et cetera. She's still caught up with, I'm pregnant? I'm gonna be pregnant? You, you get the idea, right? And she's still mulling that one over. I remember when uh, our daughter was 11 weeks old and my wife said, I think I'm pregnant. Oh, I, that's nice, dear. She said, no, I, I really am gonna take a pregnancy test. And uh, I can assure you how shocked I was. <laughs> Irish twins uh, is what we had. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, so and imagine here, Mary, uh, she doesn't, uh, the, the, the concept is you're telling me I'm pregnant? Place yourself here for a minute. Think through this. She's not questioning the announcement. It's just, it, it doesn't compute. Mary understood the angel to be announcing, I would argue, an imminent pregnancy. She takes the announcement not to be a future birth in her marriage, but an immediate one. Now, traditional Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, argues that Mary's reply is based on a vow of virginity that she has made prior to Joseph will do it in the marriage state as well. A virgin before birth, in birth, and after birth. I have real problems with that. For one, the context here is that she's gonna be immediately uh, going to be pregnant. And it's not an issue of a vow that she's made. She's 11, 12, or 13. She's not married. She doesn't know any men. But secondly, I can give you texts such as Mark 6, which states when they ask, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? Which implies Mary had other children later in life. Luke 8 states, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach Jesus because of the crowd. And I know they'll do some linguistic gymnastics and try to argue those terms mean cousins. I don't think so. We know that Mary had other children later in life, but at this point, as she states in verse 34, I've not had any sexual relations with men. Now remember, at this point, I don't think she's thought through the ramifications of what that means. She could be toast with Joseph and not to mention her parents and all that that comes, having to announce that she's pregnant. What are you going to tell him? Well, <laughs> it was of the Lord? Yeah, good answer. I don't think so. You think through this. This is why, this is why there had to be a divine <laughs> announcement to Joseph it defies all that we know, as even stated by the writer of the New York Times. <laughs> 
And so Gabriel has to repeat the message because she's still caught up. And he goes, no, let me reiterate what, what's going to happen here. Verse 35, the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then the power of the Most High will overshadow you and you're going to give birth. The Holy Spirit is the active agent and that's seen throughout Luke Acts. And we're told the Holy Spirit will overshadow. That term is used in the Old Testament to refer to God's presence, the Shekinah glory. And it's hovering over the tabernacle or God's presence and protecting his people. It's seen in Luke's gospel at the transfiguration when God overshadows those witnesses standing with Jesus on the mount. The role of the Holy Spirit indicates it's a supernatural origin. You say, well, how does this happen? I don't know. But God can create life without sexual activity. Look at Genesis, right? Genesis 1. We were created out of dust. So I think he can do that with a womb. <laughs> One scholar writes, the laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They are threads which he holds in his hand and which he shortens or lengthens at his will. Isn't that great? God has intervened. God is the one who's moved here in this scene and the Holy Spirit is involved. You see the role of the Trinity. Isn't that marvelous? The child will be born holy. Why? Because it's divine. And that term is used elsewhere in Luke to refer to the divinity of the Lord. It's not just a de descendant of David. This is something far more significant than that. It's God incarnate that has dwelled. He's taken on flesh. And I again would argue the linguistic connections with the Son of God in verse 35 with the Son of Most High is making that very loud and clear. Unlike Zechariah, Elizabeth, excuse me, Mary does not ask for a sign, does she? She takes it. But God is so gracious, via Gabriel, he gives Mary a sign. He says, oh, and by the way, here's a sign for you. Elizabeth has become pregnant, <gasps> right? And then I love, again, that line, nothing is impossible with the Lord. And this is where little Mary is absolutely amazing because it states in verse 38, she says, I'm a servant. That term is used of the lowest of the servants. She goes, who am I before God? Now again, <laughs> think about the implications for this little lady. There's personal loss could be enormous. She could lose her fiance, the man of her dreams. I'd say they're high school sweethearts, but they're not in high school yet. <laughs> uh, her reputation would be tarnished. She could be ostracized by her family and the community. And yet, what does she say? I am a servant of the Lord. Whatever you want, Lord. Wow. And if you don't think, wow, read her song of praise, the Magnificat, later. This young lady knows her theology well. It's dynamite. So, what's so significant here with this virgin birth? Let me give you a few things if you're taking notes. First of all, the virgin birth, I would argue, is historically viable. We say, well, how do you, can you say that? Well, the uniqueness of the account, we don't see elsewhere. The unity within the Gospels is significant. Jesus' birth later is called into question. Remember in John 8, 
The religious rulers say, well, <laughs> unlike you, Jesus, we weren't born in fornication. So we know there was questions being raised about the legitimacy of his birth and the surrounds that Jewish antagonism in the second century had no other independent tradition to appeal to in the refuting the virgin birth. And there's relative silence. It's not centralized or exaggerated. And it's unquestioned by the early church. As one New Testament scholar writes, up to the present, no tolerable, credible explanation of how belief in the virgin birth in the first century arose if the virgin birth is not historical. Great answer. I think the burden of proof, I would argue, is on those who seek to deny it. Well, you know, well, I still am left. Why is this significant? Let me give you a few. First of all, the virgin birth reveals that salvation ultimately and only can come from the Lord. Just as the Lord promised the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, remember after the fall, the seed would ultimately destroy the serpent? That's accomplished to Christ. Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Al Mohler states it well. He says, Christians must face the fact the denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as the Christ. The Savior who died for our sins was none other than the baby who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. The virgin birth does not stand alone as a biblical doctrine. It is an irreducible part of the biblical revelation about the person and work of Jesus Christ. With it, Moeller writes, the gospel stands or falls. I would agree. The virgin birth also makes possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. I mean, if Jesus came to earth as fully human, then you don't have a birth, and that creates problems. Or if we add deity later to Jesus, as some want to argue, then his origin, his birth, is just like ours. The doctrine of the incarnation, that is Jesus taking on human flesh, as understood by the church throughout history, has been coherent and it's very intelligible. The virgin birth also makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin from Adam. Think about the legal guilt and the moral corruption that passes from Adam onto the human race is bypassed by a virgin birth. The legal guilt, moral corruption that belongs to all other human beings did not belong to Jesus. That's why this child could be called holy. Hebrews is clear. Hebrews 4, the one who, that is Jesus, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If there's any sin, he can no longer be the Savior. It took a God-man, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. That's why this is so significant. This is why we don't take this lightly. The virgin birth, I think important point to make here, was not the beginning of the Son of God. I've heard this. The Son of God, that is Jesus, was eternally pre-existent. In a recent study by Lifeway Research, it states that three to four out of every four Americans believe Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Yay! But careful. 
less than half believed Jesus existed prior to Bethlehem. That's a problem. Because Philippians 2 states that Jesus humbled himself by taking on human form and he came and dwelt among us. This little baby is God incarnate. How can that be? It's a mystery. But my, is it creative. <laughs> and the incarnation was not a temporary event, but the permanent union of God and man in Christ Jesus. Well, you're sitting here at Hoffaditz. Thank you. It was a wonderful theological lesson. I love that. You know, it is Christmas, though. Let's just love it. Why is this so significant? How do we apply this to our lives? Let me give you three. They're in your notes. The first of these, the Lord can use anyone or anything to accomplish his task. There were some very prominent, affluent women in Jerusalem, some who had priestly lineage. God didn't choose any of them. Mary was a willing vessel. She's not from a prominent family or community. She did not hold a college degree or served as CEO of a major corporation or was known for her social work. God chose her and used her for his glory. But this morning, think about Ephesians 1. God called you before the foundation of the world. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior, he's lavished his favor on you. And what are the implications? While Mary had the privilege of calling Jesus her own son, we have the privilege of calling God our Father. Mary had the privilege of witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit. Boy, did she ever. Nine months she witnessed that. We have the privilege of being indwelled permanently by the Holy Spirit. Mary had the privilege of witnessing Jesus grow. We have the privilege of growing in Christ. Our Savior, this Jesus, can use anyone or anything and thank the Lord for that, right? <laughs> Our Lord, and this is the second point in your notes, did not arise out of the continuity of human history, thank goodness, but rather the Lord intervened to rescue us from our sin. It's creative, it's unimaginable. The virgin birth reveals that God cares for his creation in a way he graciously carries out a plan for its restoration. The act of divine love is fully undeserved while the human race was willfully following a self-destructive sinful course, God intervened to provide a savior. <laughs> Why is the virgin birth so significant? How does it apply to me? There's a second point that God would care enough to intervene in time and space. And that leads us to point C of the notes. The virgin birth attests to the fact that the entire salvation story is solely by God's grace. Take it all the way back to Nazareth. Grace. Mary, grace. Joseph, grace. Nazareth, grace. <laughs> Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The one who created the universe, Colossians tells us, is the, the head of the new creation, the church, our Savior. 
This is the same one. This is God. And now he's willing to succumb to the humiliation of dwelling among us and allowing a 12, 13-year-old to change his diapers. Ponder that thought. Wow, that's our God. <laughs> that's our Savior. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, it's a doorstopper. If you're having trouble sleeping, you should pick one up. He states, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with a finite man. And I'm going to add to what Grudem states, and I would add become one person with a finite man for the purpose of providing a means for salvation. Grudem then goes on, that will remain for eternity the most profound miracle, the most profound mystery in all of the universe. When you look at that little manger scene or you drive by the house that has one out on their front lawn and you see that little baby Jesus, that's our God. That is the Son of the Most High. And in his creativity, he uses a womb to be born into this world. This divine announcement nestled in Luke chapter 2 seems to be a rather simple message, and yet the simplicity of the account is quickly eclipsed by the fact that Mary is a virgin. Again, God's creative power has entered time and space to provide the world a savior. Father, we marvel at your grace. That you would use this 11, 12, 13 year old girl to serve as the mother of our Lord leaves us in awe. But it's reminded as well as we read this and then read later in the New Testament, the very favor you lavished on her, you lavished on us. We have the opportunity through what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and dying for our sins to have a relationship with you, to be called the children of God, to have the indwelling of the Spirit, not just for a period of time so a child could be born, but for, all, for this entire lifespan here on earth. And we marvel at your grace. May we be like Mary saying, here am I, a servant. Thank you, Father, for your grace that's been seen throughout the pages of Scripture, but clearly seen here in Luke chapter 2. In Jesus' name.